This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Well, welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. This is Alan Pierce. I'm an attorney practicing in Salem, Massachusetts, and I welcome you to today's edition of Workers' Comp Matters. This is a, a special edition for us. We are actually recording this show from uh, the Point Hilton Resort in Phoenix, Arizona, where we are at the uh, midwinter conference of the TIPS uh, and Labor Employment Law section of the American Bar Association on um, national uh, emerging trends in workers' compensation issues. And my guest today is going to talk about a very interesting topic that we've never done here on workers' compensation matters. It is the um, intoxication defense in defending a workers' compensation claim. And I'm very pleased to have with me today Attorney Gregory Pasmanis. Um, Gregory is a partner at the law firm of Bovis, Kyle and Birch in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Greg is a, a graduate of Emory College and Emory Law School in Atlanta. He has been a defense attorney for his entire career. He is uh, the chairman of the Atlanta Claims Association for Workers' Compensation, and he's the vice president and soon to be president of the Atlanta Bar Association Workers' Compensation section. Greg, welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. Well, thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, most states... Uh, either through statute or through case law or a combination of both, deal with the level of intoxication, both alcohol and drug uh, intoxication, in the defense of a workers' compensation claim as either an outright bar or a factor. Uh, from your review of this uh, f field, um, could you give us an indication in terms of whether this is primarily a statutory issue or a case law issue or a combination of the above? It is primarily a statutory issue, Alan. Um, throughout the country, most states do have statutes that specifically bar a workers' compensation claim or reduce the benefits that you can get if there is intoxication involved in causing the accident and injury. Now, are there states where there is absolutely no reference to it, either in um, their case law or in their statute? Yes, that is true. There's a, just a small number. And in those jurisdictions, um, is the level of impairment caused by either drug or alcohol ever a factor in the determination of compensability? Yes, it can still be a factor because it's dealt with somewhat like a deviation from employment. If a person is intoxicated, either through drugs, alcohol, or some kind of controlled substance or chemical, then he is not doing his master's business at the time, and so the accident or injury would not arise in and out of the employment. Okay. Um, I know in Massachusetts, where I practice, and again, um, this, uh, the entire field of workers' comp is very state-specific, we, in addition to an intoxication uh, mention in our statute, it's in the context of the serious and willful misconduct of the employee, which can be, uh, I guess, the mirror image of the employer serious and willful yeah. misconduct, which can be a doubling of benefits uh, in a punitive manner. Uh, there is reference to intoxication, which was an add-on later on, and I think a lot of social pressures that have, have come up in, in, in recent years about um, drunk driving and, and drunk impairment of uh, people using machines or anything else has, has sort of stimulated that. Uh, so in the context, in other jurisdictions, do they also have similar um, 
Disqualifications for workers' comp if the employee engages in such egregious misconduct, whether it's ingestion of, of foreign uh, toxic substances like alcohol or, or drugs? Yes, they do. And the typical statute is like the one in Georgia, where the statute says that if there is a certain level of alcohol or controlled substance in your system, as tested by a scientific test, then you are barred from um, collecting workers' compensation benefits. However, the Georgia system, like most systems in the United States, gives a rebuttable presumption that the injury was caused by intoxication if the level is whatever the state-specific statute says it is. Like in Georgia, it's 0 0.08 grams uh, for alcohol, and with controlled substances, it's any trace element of um, the drug or alcohol. So this is not unlike a DUI or operating under in a criminal setting where the mm -hmm. legislature has given um, the prosecuting authorities a mm -hmm. presumption that if you reach a certain level that that translates to impairment. And that gets us into mm -hmm. the, the, the marriage between um, levels of, of, of substance and impairment. And that's a very crucial distinction, isn't it? Yes, it is. indeed it is. Give us some examples in, from your experience as to how that plays out. Well, in an intoxication case, when we defend a case, we look at the level of um, percentage of the intoxicating substance in the blood as a very, very black and white marker. If, for example, there's 0 .08 in the state of Georgia, which is a typical level throughout the United States, if the alcohol is 0 .08 grams in your system or greater, then you are going to be rebuttably presumed to have been intoxicated at the time of the injury, and you're going to be rebuttably presumed to have caught, or it's rebuttably presumed that the intoxication caused the injury or the accident. And if it's under that, then there is no rebuttable presumption, and you're on your own if you're defending the case. And in those kind of situations, we use lay witnesses to testify that there was impairment at the time of the accident. So it's sort of like the, the policeman in the criminal trial mm -hmm. talking about the glassy yeah. eyes and the uh, slurred speech and, That's and exactly things like right. that. So from the perspective of the claimant's attorney, mm -hmm. once the uh, defense of intoxication, which I assume in Georgia is an affirmative defense that must be pleaded. Yes. Once that uh, is pleaded, now there is a burden of proof to rebut that presumption. And it would seem to me, thinking through this through, I've got to approach this the way I've got to approach if I were doing a DUI or operating under case, hiring a toxicologist, knowing mm -hmm. the Im impact between blood levels and time and blood levels of body size and blood levels of interaction with other drugs or even using mm -hmm. uh, you know, prescription meds. Um, yes. what, what, give us a couple of uh, case examples or anecdotes that you can share with us that illustrate this issue. Okay. Um, in Georgia, I have defended a couple of cases that kind of fall into that category, Alan. And um, the first one was a quarry man who was uh, tested positive for marijuana in a drug test that was done within almost the length of time it should have been done. It was done within nine hours, but our statute says in order to get a rebuttable presumption, it has to be done within eight hours of the accident and injury. So it was done one hour late, so I didn't get a rebuttable presumption. 
out of that. So what I did was I got lay witnesses to testify that this experienced quarry man was doing all sorts of unusual things that indicated that he wasn't himself. He was drilling way too close without a tether to the edge of the um, cliff that he was working on. And he ultimately was noticed to have been acting erratically. So his supervisor sent him home, or, or so he thought. So at the time, he thought his employee had gone home, but instead he went down to his car and probably smoked marijuana at that point. Stayed in there and then came back up, worked a little bit more unbeknownst to the employer, and then fell off to his death. Now, was the level of, uh, which I assume is THC in the blood, was that detected as part of the emergency room and hospital protocol to treat the injury? Yes, it was. So, um, are there, I suppose there are situations where, especially maybe in the trucking industry or some of these other industries, that immediately after an accident, either through the collective bargaining agreement or some other regulations of the employment contract, yeah. there must be a drug or alcohol screen. That's right. And that, that's for obvious reasons, one, to yes. investigate the accident, put disciplinary factors, and I suppose also a defending a, a comp claim. Yeah, many states have drug-free workplace laws that establish um, a reduction in workers' compensation insurance premiums if you establish certain policies that qualify for a drug-free workplace. And then some states also have um, laws on top of the drug-free workplace laws that say, for example, if, um, if you're in the state of Missouri, if you have an injury on the job and intoxication was involved at all, you get an automatic 50% reduction in your benefits. And then if it's determined that it was prox the injury was proximately caused by the intoxication, then you get no benefits whatsoever. That's a very interesting twist on it. That um, was enacted in August of 2008 in Missouri. Which brings up an interesting issue. Uh, if we are going to try to compare and contrast jurisdictions, uh, it's one thing to be able to establish a level of, yeah. of substance in a person's blood yeah. system. Let's talk about how that relates to impairment. And there could be somebody that is a chronic alcoholic mm -hmm. and functions better than many of us, despite uh, having a blood alcohol count uh, significantly yeah. higher than point. Uh, well, I, I did defend a case like that where uh, there was marijuana involved and the blood test showed that there had been marijuana traces in the blood uh, system. So the claimant argued that he was used to smoking marijuana and he, he was therefore not impaired. He had developed a high tolerance for marijuana and THC so that he could operate normally and that therefore the injury that he had was not related in any way to the ingestion or consumption of marijuana. I had a toxicologist retained as an expert witness, and he said that when he testified, he said that the chronic use of marijuana can build up the amount of THC in the bloodstream to where at the time of the accident, and he of course knew exactly when the accident happened and when the blood test was done, he related it back to uh, the time of the accident and determined by expert opinion exactly what the level was at the time of the accident. And then he testified that despite his protestations to the contrary, he was in fact physically and mentally impaired at the time. Right. And, and tell us a little bit about your experience with the role of alcohol and uh, uh, blood levels from um, mm -hmm. uh, alcohol ingestion prior to an accident. Well, blood levels in alcohol prior to the accident um, a lot of times the blood level at the time that you take the um, 
blood test is less than the legal limit. Like I had a case involving a pizza delivery man who was tested, but he had a very small amount of alcohol in his bloodstream when the test was done, but the test was done some eight or nine hours after the accident happened. And in order to get the rebuttable presumption in the state of Georgia, you have to have the um, blood test done within three hours of the accident and injury. In this case, it was eight or nine hours later, and so the amount of um, alcohol in the bloodstream had decreased a great deal. And in that case, we had no lay witnesses to testify as to impairment, and we had no blood test to testify um, as a documentary that piece of evidence that there was intoxication. So we had no evidence of intoxication, even though he admitted to having drank like a fish the night before and then drank two beers at lunch and then went on his pizza delivery runs and ultimately ended up in a motor vehicle accident at around 4.30 or 5 o'clock. But during that time, he had spent an hour working in the kitchen with other people and nobody stepped forward to say that he was impaired. So we had no lay evidence of impairment. We had no blood test showing impairment. Therefore, we had no impairment. What do the other states do? How, what, give us the parameter of uh, degrees of proof you need for causation or, or approximate cause, contributory cause, things mm -hmm. like that. Well, there are three main um, standards that are used throughout the United States. The one that is predominantly used is the proximate cause standard, Alan, and that is the one that says that intoxication in order to bar a workers' compensation claim has to be the predominant, primary, or major contributing cause to the injury and the accident. And then to one extreme on the other side, you have intoxication as the sole cause of the accident or injury. And then on the other side to the extreme, you have just any contributing cause of intoxication to the accident will bar the claim. So you have proximate cause in the middle, and then on one side you've got sole cause, and then on the other side you've got contributing cause. Now, have there been some uh, cases that have reached the various appellate jurisdictions that have that you could share with us? I know you spoke yes. earlier this morning about a, a one or two of them. Yes. Um, let me give you the Toolmac case that's a case that uh, involved a truck driver by the name of Toolmac, T-L-U-M-A-C, and it was a New Jersey case at 187 New Jersey 567, 902 Atlantic 2nd, 222, in 2006. The Supreme Court of New Jersey held in that case that um, the claimant, a truck driver, was entitled to to collect workers' compensation benefits, even though he had a blood alcohol level of 0.10 to 0.18% and admitted to having drunk at least 10 beers the night before. But what he also said is that alcohol was not the only thing in his system at that time that, uh, or the only thing that could have caused or contributed to the accident. He said he'd been working way too many hours, so he had excessive hours, and he said he hadn't gotten enough sleep, so he had received much less sleep than he usually did. And in that case, he ran off the road and hit a tree and was severely injured. But they gave him workers' compensation benefits in New Jersey anyway. New Jersey Supreme Court held that the employer should have, um, in order to win, should have proved that the excessive hours and the lack of sleep did not significantly contribute to the accident. Uh, the court, the, Georgia's, the um, New Jersey Supreme Court, found that that was not the case, so he was entitled to benefits. But what happened after that sole cause hearing, that was 
intoxication had to be the sole cause of the accident and injury in order to bar the claim in New Jersey. The legislature found out about that case law decision and changed the law to make it a proximate cause test instead. So they moved from the extreme of being the, the sole cause type of state to a proximate cause type of state, which is the middle ground and which is the test that most jurisdictions use. Okay, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back and talk about how to properly investigate these claims okay. and what you as a defense attorney have to do to educate your client, yeah. the claims adjuster, your claim supervisor, when a case comes into them with all the earmarks of a slam dunk, this man or woman is not going to get workers' comp. So we're going to be right back with Greg Messmanis. Thank you. Need to communicate with your non-English speaking clients? Call Benoit Language Services. We have interpreters and translators throughout the USA, so you are able to converse quickly and effectively with your clients. We cover all legal matters, medical appointments, and statements. We offer telephone interpretations, written translations, and handle all proceedings at the Department of Industrial Accidents. Benoit Language Services, dedicated to the art of communication. Call us for a free quote at 1-800-261-5152 or visit BenoitInc.com. That's B-E-N-O-I-T-I-N-C.com. Are you interested in sponsoring programs on the Legal Talk Network? We'd love to have you on board. Contact our sales department today at 781-551-9960. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Okay, uh, we're back with Attorney Gregory Prasmanis of the law firm of Bovis, Kyle, and Birch in Atlanta, Georgia, where we've been talking about the intoxication defense, not just alcohol intoxication, but obviously drug or alcohol uh, uh, intoxication or impairment. Uh, we talked about uh, how best to investigate these cases, the mistakes claims people make, things they do or they don't do, and you may want to give us some, uh, some of your thoughts and experience in that. Well, one of the funniest situations that I have to deal with is how excited claims adjusters can get if they get a positive drug test when they don't consider whether there was any impairment that might have caused the accident or injury. And without the impairment that caused or contributed to the accident in some way, shape, or form throughout the United States, that's what's required before the claim is going to be barred. So just intoxication by itself doesn't provide a complete defense to a worker's compensation claim. You have to have some degree of impairment or some degree of causation between the accident and the intoxication before it's going to be barred. So in um, a lot of cases, we will get a call from the claims adjuster and say, well, let's celebrate. We've got a positive drug test. And the next thing you know, there's nothing to show impairment and there's nothing to show causation. And therefore, you don't really have an intoxication defense. For example, when you have a car wreck case and the passenger 
submits a worker's compensation claim, but the passenger was drunk at the time and had a positive drug test. Well, Alan, that's not a problem for uh, recovering workers' compensation benefits. You can be drunk as a passenger and still recover workers' compensation benefits because the intoxication had nothing to do with causing the accident or injury. So what do you do to educate your clients to um, when these cases come in? What's the first thing they should be thinking about or looking at? The first thing that we usually do is we, we try to find impairment through the lay witnesses, and we want to get them interviewed as quickly as possible before their memories fade. We want to know the same things that you would um, know if you were pulled over for a DUI and a policeman was investigating the case. You know, do you have um, blurry vision? Do you have slurred speech? Are you able to balance yourself? Do you look like you're intoxicated? Um, and those lay witnesses are extremely important. They can also testify as to when they saw or heard that the claimant was ingesting or consuming some uh, intoxicating substance. Um, I've had witnesses testify that just before the accident happened that they talked to the claimant and the claimant indicated that the night before he'd stayed up all night drinking and just went out and had another beer um, just before the accident happened and then subsequently fell off a roof, for example. Those things are mighty important, so you want that lay witness testimony. Then regarding the expert witness testimony, you have to go in quickly and make sure that you have custody and possession of the sample, the blood or urine sample. And then if the um, screen is just one of those preliminary screens, drug screens, that just shows the presence of an intoxicating substance in the bloodstream or the urine stream, then that's not enough by itself. You want to send it to a forensic laboratory in order to have the quantity of the intoxicating substances specifically identified and measured. Because if you don't have that, it's very difficult for a toxicologist or a um, pharmacologist to testify that the person was impaired at the time of the accident. Well, that leads me to, to wonder about the medical privacy issues and the ability of the insurance company to access this. It's one thing to get the ER report with the observations of the triage nurse or the attending physician, or to get the labs and um, the, at least the basic screens they do in a trauma case. Mm -hmm. But let's say you get a, a lab that says it's 0.18 or 0.20. How does a claims department or investigator get that sample, get it to a toxicologist, and Talk about the cost effectiveness of this. If you're going to be looking at a six weeks out of work case, mm. you know, you're talking a lot of work and a lot of money to defend that. That's right. And a lot of times the employer uh, can give you good information on whether this is such a small, minor incident that it does not need to be made into a federal drug case. And um, there are um, instances where the employee makes a mistake and has an intoxication caused accident or injury and the employer is willing to forgive them and let bygones be bygones and you don't want to make a federal case out of it. So in those kind of cases it would be contraindicated. You wouldn't want to spend all that money defending a case like that. Then the, the second thing is that when, when you have a um, workers' compensation claim made by a person, um, a lot of times you have to go into the complete investigation to determine whether it's a viable legal defense or not. And if it is, then you go into the next step 
you know, if you really think the person was intoxicated and it played a part in causing this accident, then you can make the decision next as a cost-effectiveness procedure whether or not you want to spend the money establishing the chain of custody, which is a very expensive thing. You might have to take a deposition of everybody who touched the, that sample. But uh, one way to get that done is to send it to a forensic laboratory and get the toxicologist who works for the forensic laboratory and the toxicologist who works for the um, the lab that did the initial testing, get them to both testify as to the chain of custody and the impairment uh, at the time of the injury. One other uh, aspect of this I want to discuss, and, it, and, and again, I'm only familiar with my jurisdiction, which is Massachusetts, and our language regarding intoxication is embedded in our mm -hmm. more general section that deals with willful misconduct. And in our uh, jurisdiction, it says that the a proof of serious willful misconduct of the employee will bar his or her claim for injuries, but it will not bar the claim in the event of a death for widow or, or dependent children. And I'm wondering if that's unique to Massachusetts or, uh, for example, let's say somebody is, is drunk or drug impaired and, and kills himself or herself on the job. Widow and children collect? Normally they would collect. That's the majority rule. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this has been enlightening to me. I hope it's been enlightening to you. Our guest today has been Attorney Gregory Pressmanis uh, of Atlanta, Georgia, and we've been talking about the intoxication defense. So again, we hope you come back to Workers' Comp Matters, and we ask you to go out and make it a day that matters. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network. Hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other workers' comp matter shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.